it's okay. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been up here, um, uh, and it wasn't intentional. I was actually supposed to be speaking a couple of weeks ago, but as it was Steve's last morning, we felt it was appropriate to ask him to speak. Um, so what it's meant um, is that I've missed quite a long period of time since I've been speaking, but it's good to be back up here. Uh, this morning, we're going to be speaking on David and Absalom. Uh, so we're not talking about a relationship with a former king. We're not talking about uh, a friendship or uh, a, a lover or a wife. Um, we're talking about him and his son. So it's a very different relationship. Um, and what we're going to be talking about this morning is everything that's kind of happened. You know, John last week spoke on David and Bathsheba and everything that's kind of happened since then. Since then, um, since this kind of fall moment that David's had, there's been a whole bunch of things that have gone on since David slept with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah, her husband, and took her as, a, as his wife. Um, and that as we're going to jump into it, and I'm going to have to kind of do some explaining as we go through, because we've jumped forward quite a lot in the narrative. Um, there's been a lot of things that have happened, and David isn't in a good place. He's been rebuked by the prophet Nathan, um, and uh, and then a whole bunch of things have gone on in his family, which we're going to just explain through a little bit to explain how we got to where we are uh, today with Absalom, what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so let me just pray if you could open your Bibles. Now on the screen, I think it's going to say First Samuel, because I don't know why it says that, but it says First Samuel. I spotted it yesterday, but the slides were already here. Um, it's Second Samuel 15. So if it, oh, it just says Second Samuel. It was my notes that were wrong. Okay. I don't know how that's happened. Maybe John's fixed it for me. Um, okay, Second Samuel 15, 1 to 6. Um, and then we're going to skip a little bit and go from 13 to 16. So if you have your Bibles with you, just open them up to around there. Um, there are Bibles at the back. And if you don't have one at home, you can take one and keep it. It's yours as a gift, okay? So, um, but if you've got them with you, it's helpful to have them open. Let's just pray. Father, just thank you for this morning. Thank you. What, a, what an amazing um, time it is together every week with our brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you, Jesus to just glorify you, to lift you high in, in our songs, in, in our hearts, Lord. But Father, help us to continue to worship you by just being willing to listen, being willing to have open hearts to what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Yeah, and I'm still getting used to these glasses, by the way. I know it's a bit off-putting probably, but basically the situation is I can see without them, I can see you, it's like HD, like standard definition, definition, high definition. Okay, so if you see me taking them on and off, I'm sorry if it's distracting, but I'm still getting used to them. They're a new thing to me. So. Okay, so 2 Samuel 15, and we're going to 1 to 6. In the course of time, Absalom, that's who we're talking about this morning, provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate, that's Jerusalem. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call, to, call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid. 
and proper. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, you know, he is the prince of Israel, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read the bit in between here, um, but what we're going to see is Absalom makes an excuse to his father to to leave. But what he's going to do is he's going to leave for a period of time in order to acquire the right people and the right moment in order to try and overthrow his father David from the throne. And we jump back in in verse 13. A messenger came to David and told, came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. Okay, I just want to start Uh, really by saying everybody in the room can associate with what's happening right now in the royal family in Israel. What we just read through, every one of us um, has family issues from time to time. Am I right? Yeah. So that was a bit too loud, to be honest, a bit too key. Uh, It's a real pressing matter for you right now. Okay. Everyone in the room has issues when their family get together. We all have issues Some of them are very public. Our royal family have had very public uh, personal issues going on between their family. And that's what's going on here. Uh, And many of us can associate, when our family gets together, that we have issues in family gatherings. You know, we all have that uncle, right? Or that person, that person who has, you know, issues going on and causes problems for everybody else. And there are certainly two types of trouble that I... that happen, that families can face. Trouble that comes from outside of the family. Uh, you know, your house can flood. Your, you could be robbed. These are things that come from outside of the family and affect you as a family. And these experiences that families go through, where they, the kind of things that have just hit you, I've often found that families pull together around those things and they rally behind one another. It pulls families together. You know, if someone in your family becomes sick, it has a way of bringing you together as a family. When issues come from outside, you tend to stick together. But it's not so true when troubles come from inside. This is when families can become very fractured. When you have parents in a family that maybe are choosing actively to walk in sin, um, or, or you know, uh, they can become abusive or neglectful, um, parents that are bitter or live in unforgiveness, it's really hard for the family to sustain themselves through that. It can also happen when children live in rebellion, amen? Um, constantly looking to disagree or to defy what you ask them to do or just the way that they act causes disharmony amongst the family. It's really hard for families to, to unite in those circumstances. 
Anyone experience these things or is it just me? Yeah, okay, good. That's good. We're on the, on the same wavelength here. Family trouble is a real thing and it really happens. And what we're, that's what we're met with here as we jump into this story with David and his son Absalom. Um, they are living out what the Bible calls their fleshly desires. And in turn, what we see is that it brings destruction to them. David, as we talked about last week, in his flesh, he desired and he lusted for Bathsheba. He knew she was married. Um, He knew her husband. And he still chose to sleep with her and then have her husband Uriah killed. And then we also see with Absalom in this story, he's living out his fleshly desires in wanting to be the ruler of Israel and he'll take it at any cost. Galatians 6 uh, verses 7 to 8 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, however, from the spirit will reap eternal life. And here's the truth. When we, we reap what we sow, we know that, don't we? The world would talk about that principle. It's not just, not just a biblical principle that we talk about in church. Actually, the world would say that. You reap what you sow, right? It's kind of become a worldly saying too. The passage starts with this warning. Don't be deceived. So I want to just touch on real quick before we get into the kind of thrust of the story. As followers of Jesus... We're taught to understand the incredible, amazing grace and forgiveness that we receive through Jesus, aren't we? So we understand as followers of Jesus, when we choose to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we we receive grace and mercy and forgiveness for all of the wrongs that we've ever done. Hopefully that's what we preach here, right? But the trap and the deception that the Bible warns us against here is that when we sin, (laughs) The deception is all we have to do is just go to God and say, okay, I've sinned, I apologize, I confess my sin, the wrongness of my actions, I claim forgiveness in Jesus' name, which is true, and then everything from that moment is hunky-dory and my consequences have gone. But that's not what Scripture says. Uh, Remembering, of course, that this passage in Galatians, this is written to the early church. It was written to you and me as followers of Jesus. Those who were living under that same grace, that same forgiveness that we're living in today, it was written to them, to those who are in Christ. And it warns us is that when we sow in the flesh, what we will see in return is destruction in our lives. We are a people who know what grace means. We know what it means. Grace means that God has forgiven you for what you've done wrong. And he gives you the strength to endure the consequences of your sin. And that grace also frees us up to obey what God has for us now as believers. What it doesn't mean is that the consequences of your sin are automatically removed. So bear with me here. You know, if in this process of sinning, say for example, I decide it's a good idea to have a few pints and get in the car and drive and because I'm intoxicated I crash into a wall and break my nose and break my arm now I might be able to seek forgiveness for what I've done wrong but guess what's still broken my arm and my nose (laughs) 
because, because my sin has consequences. D- decisions that we make that bring destruction, the consequences don't disappear. You might find forgiveness, but there's still consequences. Things have gone terribly wrong in David's life, and there are consequences to what he's done. The truth is, is that not only, you know, I've used broken bones as an illustration, but this happens to us emotionally as well when we sin. When we sin, things can be broken emotionally that are still broken even if we're forgiven. When a parent willfully or irresponsibly acts against God, which David does, the parent suffers, but so does the family. And this is true in terms of where David's at. David has chosen the desires of the flesh. He served the flesh to do some terrible things in the eyes of God. And yes, he's repented. Yes, he's wept. Yes, he's put things right with God. And he's done all of that. And yes, he's been met with grace. But the consequences of his sin are still following him and his family. So what is it that's led us to this point? Okay, with where David is at right now, with where Absalom is at, how did we get to a point where a son sees it as the right decision to overthrow his father? How did we get to this point? Um, what happens here? Well, well, what we see is after David and Bathsheba and him killing Bathsheba's uh, husband, Uriah, um, what we see is a, a little uh, thing that takes place between Amnon, David's son, Tamar, David's daughter, and Absalom, who is the son we're going to be talking about. Amnon, son of David, he falls in love with his sister, Tamar. Gross, right? And comes up with this master plan to get Tamar, his sister, into his bedroom by, by pretending that he's sick. When she's there, he rapes her and then throws her out of his room, completely robbing Tamar of everything. And then it turns out that Amnon, this guy who was so in love with his sister, decides that actually it wasn't love, it was just brazen lust. Both Tamar, <laughs> uh, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, who we're, you know, we're focusing on, finds out about this, and so does her father, David. He finds out about it too. And the Bible says that Absalom, he takes his sister and cares for her and looks after her. And David is furious. You know, the father is furious, but doesn't take any real action against his son Amnon, who's done this wrong. And Absalom, her brother, also says nothing really, just takes Tamar. Until two years later, Absalom takes matters into his own hands and seeks takes an opportunity to get revenge against his brother for what he did, and he kills him, and then flees Israel to hide. Yeah, you think Jeremy Kyle's interesting, right? Like, this is bonkers. Um, So this is what's happening in David's family. Since Bathsheba, this is what happens in David's family. Listen, I just wanted to, before we get into just David and Absalom and what happens between them. I just wanted to point out, our sin has real consequences. My sin has consequences. When we seek to serve the flesh, it brings destruction into our lives. 
And I felt I needed to just call out the lie of the enemy this morning that he wants so desperately for you to believe. You know, maybe you found yourself locked in sinful behavior. Maybe it's just become more of a habit, more of who you are. Maybe your tongue's just a little bit too loose and you find yourself gossiping, sharing what isn't yours to share about somebody else. Maybe your internet search history is a long list of embarrassment to you. Maybe you've got really good at hiding these things or passing them off in spiritual words, you know, or found excuses in your own heart to continue in them. But the lie from the enemy is, well, who are you really hurting anyway? You're not harming anyone. Other people do it. What's the problem if you do it too? Listen, God loves you. Uh, And his plan for your life is not to be a person who pleases the flesh. From the flesh you reap destruction. Whoever sows in the Spirit, God says, will, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. To be a people, that's what we're called to be, to be a people that bring life. To bring life to, to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our schools, to, to our smaller communities, to our life group, to, to our church. We're called to be a people that don't listen to what the flesh wants, but listen to what the Spirit is leading us to. To be a people who bring life. Just look at where David's life is in this moment. This king, just look at where he's got himself to. This is quite the story, and further down the line, you'll see that this this long run-up of Absalom returning to Jerusalem after killing his brother... Um, but with a motive. He's coming back with a purpose. And that is instigating a full-scale rebellion against his own father, his own dad. And Absalom gathers his troops and he gets the right people around him. And David chooses not to fight. Now, the first time I read this, if I'm being honest, I was kind of shocked. I remember this feeling of like, man, like this guy's coming to, coming to get him. And, and then there's this opposite thing of happening of like, David, truly, he, he's going to prove how, how tough he is. You know, we read about David. He's this giant killer. He's, an, he's, he's got the army of Israel at his disposal. For the first time ever, the 12 tribes of Israel are united under one king. And David is, he's the head of that. He's the king appointed by God. So why didn't he fight? Why didn't he stand his ground? Why didn't he fight? Why didn't he take out Absalom? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is really obvious. This is his son. This is his own flesh and blood. This is his boy. This is a difficult situation for David to be put in. This huge family dispute. And, and, and I think the second one is, is that David knew that the kingdom, it didn't really belong to him. He knew it wasn't really his kingdom. He knew it belonged to God. And with that in mind, David doesn't depend on his ability to, de- to defend the kingdom. He, he, he depends on God's ability. Absalom, you see, had reached the conclusion that he should be leading instead of his father. He believed 
that he would be a better king. And he decides that he's going to take it by whatever means are necessary. And we're going to read now just what, what, what does David do in response to all this happening. 2 Samuel 15, uh, verses 30 to 31, it says, But David, he leaves. He continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was bare for all the people with him, covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told that Hithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David, in this moment of desperation, at risk of losing his kingship, his country, what does he do? Does he fight for what's being given to him? He turns to God. And he prays this request that God turns the advice that Absalom is getting into foolishness. It's given foolish advice. And eventually, David would take back, take back Israel and be reinstated as the king. Absalom, on the other hand, well, <laughs> Absalom is described as beautiful, handsome, uh, long flowing hair. Like I imagine like head and shoulders adverts, do you know, like where they whip it around, it's silky. But it, it went right down, like it was so long, he had super long hair. Um, and, and he's riding his, his mule, and as he's riding along, this beautiful lock, locks that he has gets trapped in a tree branch, and the mule keeps walking, and he's just stuck in the tree, hanging from his hair, right? Funny story. And there's something ironic about his beauty being the thing that traps him. And he's killed by David's men. Uh, it's a tragic story. And it leaves David, just like in the exchange with King Saul, once again mourning the death of, of a man who's tried to kill him. And what I want to do, just to finish really, is to pull out two sides of this story. One, first I'm going to just look at David real quick, and then I want to look at Absalom. Uh, so David, uh, I think one of the things that's confusing at the start, like I, we talked about with Amnon and Tamar, and what happens there, how he rapes his sister. Um, of course, you know, the question it leaves you with is, why didn't you do something, David? Why didn't you... You know, given the punishment that he deserved, it's really confusing, isn't it? And of course, there are many reasons that people suggest, but I think probably the most likely reason is that David was guilty of sexual sin himself. In the case of Bathsheba, he used his power and his position to take what he wanted. And it's almost like father like son. And, and maybe in the case of Amnon and Tamar, he felt inadequate to judge. He felt almost like his guilt has disqualified him. David knew that he'd lost the, his integrity. Uh, the sin was very public of what he had done, the crime that he had committed. And this is one of the broken bones that we're talking about, right? That it's just followed him. And he's not able to deal with the situation properly. It's a consequence of his sin. 
regardless of this reason, that I, th- I think maybe if he knew with hindsight, how many of us would love hindsight, to, if he knew where this was headed, he might have dealt with things a bit differently. Absalom went on to be a threat to David. But what's interesting is how David conducts himself from here on out. David could have stopped Absalom at any point, right? Like he could have, when, when Absalom killed his brother Amnon, David could have hunted him down. He could have, he could have just been like, just like this king before him, King Saul. He could have hunted Absalom down, pursued him and his men that he had with him. Could have gone looking through the caves of Israel, trying to find him to kill him, kill the threat before it became very real. And he could have just got rid of him, but he didn't. David, in this moment, is still resilient to become the king like the king before him. David was secure in his anointing. David's kingdom is attacked and he chooses to trust God. He still holds on to what God has given him lightly. And I think that's just a question for you and for me this morning, for, for us to perhaps think about the things that God has given us. Does it belong to you or does it belong to him? You know, we did a baby dedication up here the other week, didn't we? Little baby Ruby. <laughs> God gives us incredible blessings, incredible gifts. How do we react when the things that we want to keep hold of, the things that we want, the things that we believe belong to us, the blessings that God has given to, to you? Maybe it's your finances, maybe your family, your career. Do they belong to you or do they belong to him? The very next breath that you take, is it yours or is it from him? How do we react when things are taken away? Do we lash out, trying to preserve what's ours by rights? Maybe a promotion that we wanted that we didn't get. Does it just turn us off God completely? Perhaps a trip that we were going to take. Maybe we'd been saving a long time and your car breaks down and you have to fix it. Maybe a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend that just didn't work out. How do we react? We must understand that everything, every good thing that we have comes from Him. We sing it, don't we, here? You give and take away. Yet my heart still chooses to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We may be disappointed when God takes things away from us, but we must respond by coming to him. David, what does he do? He leaves, he holds open hands what God has given to him. And his first response is not to fight, not, not to kill, not to you know, be brutal, but in fact to turn to God and to say, Lord, will you help me? Will you help me? He turns to God, giving God an opportunity to work in his life rather than relying on ourselves. And next and last is Absalom. Now, regardless of the reason, Absalom has taken matters into his own hands. He's avenged his sister Tamar and killed his half-brother Amnon. And, and even though it resulted in so many issues for him, Absalom had to live away from his family, live away from the comforts of his life, 
for three years for the murder before he found a way to come back into Jerusalem. And when he returns to the city of Jerusalem, he comes with his unhealthy mindset. Absalom was full of pride. And, and whereas God's kingdom is one of humility, and we, ca- we, ca- we can call this even today, people refer to it as the spirit of Absalom. It's still alive and kicking in, in, in today's society, in today's church. And it's a spirit that sees to bring division in the kingdom. And, and we need to look out for this in your workplace, in the culture that you allow to, the world to infect us with, in the podcasts that we listen to, the TV shows that we watch. They speak about world leaders. Even in the church today, we have this issue. This attitude that says, look at me, look at my knowledge, look at my abilities, look at my accomplishments, look at my ministry. I, I, I can lead. I, I, I would do a better job than that guy or that girl. I'm a better person than them. And, and I would say, if I'm being honest, I think living in Canada for four years and then coming back, I didn't realize how pre- prevalent it was in UK society. Uh, I mean, just look out for it and you'll hear it. There, there is not a political leader, industry leader, business leader, social leader, or member of the royal family that as a country, we don't think it's okay to poke at. We don't think it's okay to throw stones at and to completely write off as a person of stupidity the moment they make a mistake. How do we speak about those people that are in authority over us? Whether that be in church or whether it be in the workplace or in the government, whether that be your boss, the person who pays your salary, how do you speak about the people that God has put in authority over you? Do we show respect even when we don't always understand or agree with the decisions that they're making. Now, in church especially, don't hear what I'm not saying, in church especially, I'm not talking about ignoring sin, I'm not talking about ungodly leadership, I'm not talking about that, but the manner in which we deal with or speak about that person, it should not be the way that Absalom chooses to undermine, to take what we want, to speak what we want, to bring destruction by following the desires of the flesh, to be popular or to gossip or to to undermine the leadership, to make us feel better about ourselves. We must be careful, my brothers and sisters, that we don't allow this to enter the church, this spirit of Absalom. David, in the same situation, he's been hounded by King Saul. He's been chased, he's been chased into the caves. He's living a nomad life. He's, he's been absolutely, you know, fear for his life, having to run away. And even in the moment, we talked about it, didn't we, in the cave where, where Saul's right in front of him and his men are going, go on, kill him, go on, get him. And David just cuts a bit of his cloak to prove that he had a moment to tr- that he could have killed Saul. And what does David do? He weeps for even cutting his cloak. He says, who am I? Who am I to touch the Lord's anointed? Who am I? Humility is a mark of the kingdom. Humility is the mark of a disciple. God has allowed this person to be in a position of authority over me, and who am I? I understand that God shows favor 
to those who are humble. The Bible says that God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And it's clear, it's so clear that Absalom is charming. People are attracted to his gifts, to his abilities. The Bible even talks about how good looking he is. Like this guy is attractive. But whereas he should have been using his gifts and his abilities to, and, and his charisma to serve his father, instead he chooses to use them for his own gain. I just want to quickly finish by just taking us to a scene. It's the Last Supper. Jesus is with his closest disciples, his closest friends. And, you know, he's going to wash their feet. It's communion. First time he breaks bread, a new covenant. And, he, and he's getting ready to be arrested. And what are those numpties talking about? Luke 22, 24. A dispute also arose among them. <laughs> the, the disciples are arguing. What are they arguing about? Who's going to... I want to plant the church in Corinth. You know, I want to plant the church in Corfu. You know, like... No, they're not talking about the kingdom. What are they talking about? <laughs> There's a dispute that rises among them about which of them was considered the greatest. <laughs> I mean, I laugh because I'm just as bad. <laughs> Jesus said to them, first of all, he probably banged his head on the table. <laughs> Jesus said to them, look, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. This is what Jesus says to you and to me this morning. But you are not like that. You are not like that. Jesus came, and although he was the Savior, <laughs> although he was God, he did not see that as a reason to be served, but a reason to serve. We're called as his people not to be a people who throw stones, not to be a people who mock our leadership. You might not agree with them. You might not like their political principles or the, the way that they behave sometimes. Pray for them. Don't criticize them. And I'm all for, we vote <laughs> for a godly leader. I'm all for that. But if God has allowed that person to be an authority over us, our job is to serve and to love and to pray for God to come and bring his kingdom. As a church, we need to look different from the world. And as fun as it is to participate in the laughing at your boss at work, as fun as it is to watch Have I Got News For You and laugh at the leaders in our country, actually, we can't let that seep into who we are. But you are not like that. It's not this way with you, Jesus says. It's not about who's the greatest among you. He goes on to say, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. Hmm. The one who rules 
like the one who serves. This is a tragic story in David's family with Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. And no one should experience the treatment that Tamar endured. And it's important that we respond to these situations with integrity and justice. And David neglected justice. And Absalom implemented his own. Both were wrong. And it led us into this horrible place. But today, what I want to finish with and what I hope is ringing in your ears as we finish, as the band come back up, what I hope is ringing in our ears as we finish today and as we just go into a time of response and worship is the words of Jesus that say to us, but you, my disciples, are not like that. You're not like that person. You're not like Absalom. You're different. 